Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AgroInnovations.com podcast, where we deal with all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade to globalization and organics. For the next several shows, we'll be taking an in-depth look at community-supported agriculture. To get us started, we have with us Elizabeth Keene of Indian Line Farm. Her farm was one of the first CSAs in the country, and she'll tell us the fascinating history of the farm. So don't go anywhere. Elizabeth Keene is next. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the agroinnovations.com podcast. For the next series of shows, we'll be focusing on community-supported agriculture, and we have a lineup of some interesting guests. Today, we have with us Elizabeth Keene of Indian Line Farms. Elizabeth, thanks for being with us today. Um, You are the director of Indian Line Farm. Could you tell us where Indian Line Farm is located? Yes, Indian Line Farm is in South Egremont, Massachusetts, and my husband and I, Alex Thorpe, are the co-owners of the farm. Okay. And as we delve into this topic of community-supported agriculture, we'll be having several guests with us, and you're the first of several. Um, It seems appropriate that we start with Robin Van N. Who was she, and what is her connection to Indian Line Farm? Uh, Robin Van N. was the owner of Indian Line Farm from approximately 1983 until her passing in January of 1997. And she had uh, a fairly extensive horticultural background and came to this area uh, primarily to be around the Waldorf School that was the Rudolf Steiner Waldorf School. And she had a young son at that point. And she got this old dairy farm, which is what this farm is, and she very much was interested in in farming, but uh, obviously as one person and uh, very little uh, income at that point. Um, she never started a full-scale farm at that point, but her she was a great visionary of a woman and had lots of ideas about how one could create a more equitable system in terms of food supply and demand and how we could just create a system that was somehow more equitable to farmers. And she was joined by a man named Jean Vandertein, who had spent considerable time in Switzerland and in Europe and had some great experiences with farms that were doing similar to what CSA eventually did. And he was looking for a site to uh, to, investi- to to try out this idea of having farms be supported directly by consumers with this idea that the risk would be shared. And he ended up at the E.F. Schumacher Society, which is right down the street from Indian Line Farm, and they directed him to Robin Van Ennen. And together, they, with a group of other very interested and committed community members, developed the name Community Supported Agriculture and the one of the, the first farms in the United States that farmed with this idea of shared risk. 
Um, and that was in 1985. I think they did a fall project just with apples. And then the following spring and summer was their first real season, 1986. And do you think that she invented CSA or do you think that she was just an advocate of CSA? I think what happened in this particular historical time was that a number of pretty amazing people who wanted to try a pretty amazing project all came together at the same time, all having very clear ideas about how can we make farming more equitable for farmers and for the people who are getting that food. And so when you say, did Robin Van Inn invent CSA, the concept was much richer. It had much more historical veins coming into what eventually became this particular farm. So she was not alone in, in that project. So I think it would be incorrect to say she invented CSA, um, but it was certainly at this place in uh, her living room because this is where they decided they would actually do the farm, where they would actually do the season, that they coined the term, and where the group of people came together, hired a grower, and then it became the first CSA. And I say that somewhat tentatively because there's another farm in New Hampshire called the Temple Wilton CSA that also in the same year with these very similar veins of history um, also did something very similar. They came up with even a very similar name. Um, so that's why we like to say it was one of the first. And I think they also in Temple Wilton say that they were one of the first. Right. Um, and so what happened after uh, that season where they started with the Apple project and then what happened subsequently? The There was a land tenure agreement where Robin leased her farm to this group of people that was the CSA. They had some kind of, you know, not an official board of directors, but some kind of a, a committee or, a you know, a, an advisory group that was essentially in charge of what was going on, in charge of the budget, in charge of the money. And so she leased the farm to this group, and that group was um, made up of some of these members who initially, you know, came up with the idea um, herself, and a grower which they hired. And I'm not sure if there was more than one grower. And they uh, farmed for three seasons. I'm pretty sure it was the same grower for three years. And at the end of those three years, as you can imagine, with any new project and with a lot of very committed people with maybe slightly different ideas, there were some problems. And what ended up happening is Robin chose not to renew her lease to this particular group of people. And they then moved to another farm in the local area, which eventually became the Mahewe Harvest CSA. And Robin and then a number of other folks decided also to keep this CSA um, concept going here and also then hired another grower and tried to keep going uh, for the next so 86, um, And I think somewhat unsuccessfully for two years after the initial three years, they um, were able to keep uh, the CSA going. But after I think 1991, no longer was there an actual operating CSA here. 
and uh, and but the initial group, I, I would say many of the very initial members then continued to be members at this other at this other CSA, and I think they at that particular farm were able to maybe you know solidify some of the ideas of this project and this concept a little bit more and. And and just you know to take the next step in something that's a very new, you know, a new thing. Um, again, I wasn't around during any of this. <laughs> I was still in high school, so uh, well, high school and college rather, and and didn't come to Indian Line Farm until you know like late '97. Well, that's a nice segue to my next question, which is how did you become involved in Indian Line Farm? Uh, I chose, well, after three years of living and working in Guatemala with an organization called Witness for Peace, I became, you know, intimately involved with rural subsistence farmers. And though I wasn't working in the field of agriculture, I was mainly working in the field of direct accompaniment of a group of people that wanted to return back to Guatemala after living in refuge for 10 to 12 years, I saw a way of life and saw a group of people that were very intimately connected to land and the, you know, the cycles of nature, which, um, you know, which farmers are so intimately connected with. And it was just through that experience that I wanted to come back to the United States and have sort of develop a deeper understanding of what sustainable agriculture was and how I could then perhaps gain more practical skills and eventually maybe even go back to Central America with something that I might be able to share a little more concretely and ended up doing an apprenticeship at this Mahewi Harvest CSA and there met my husband and the following year Robin died and there was somewhat of a vacuum in that there was all of a sudden this farm available, but I should back up just a little bit. After my apprenticeship, I inquired with Robin, who had then started an organization called CSA of North America, and though she wasn't actively farming, she was from you know the very beginning, even in 86, actively speaking and organizing around this concept of CSA. She felt very led to advocate this concept around the United States and always said that by year 2000, there would be you know over a thousand CSAs around the country and in which I think there's pretty good documentation that that actually transpired. Um, but anyway, at that point she was not farming, but rather she was doing a lot of advocacy work and had this organization that was she was trying to sort of get off the ground to being an, an official nonprofit, and they were organizing one of the first Northeast CSA conferences. So she hired me at that point, because I have fairly good administrative and organizational skills, to help her with that conference. So I worked with her for three months out of her home office, and then she died three months later of a very you know unexpected asthma attack. And... At that point, some of her friends, um, colleagues around the community, which Al and I had, strangely enough, in a very short period of time, began to get to know and became a little bit connected to this place, 
had really suggested to the family that they allow us to rent the farm. And so, though we were certainly not qualified to run a farm after a one-year apprenticeship, we decided that we would take the opportunity to have this beautiful piece of property um, in a lease situation and just go for it. And so that's how we ended up here. And did you have to rehabilitate the farm? Uh, it sounds like it was the CSA at that specific farm kind of fizzled out. Did you have to sort of revitalize all of that? Absolutely. One, the farm was in an absolute total disarray. The, I think that, again, I wasn't here in the early 80s, but I think a couple of things were going on. One, Robin herself inherited kind of a mess from the previous dairy farmers who essentially sold out um, and left lots of things here, lots of rusting equipment, lots of old refrigerators, um, and then Robin herself was also somewhat of a a keeper, I guess you could say. <laughs> and so there was plenty to, one, have to just clean up. There were lots and lots of things that needed to be disposed of properly and um, buildings that needed to be essentially cleaned out and grounds that needed to be brought back to life and fences that needed to be repaired or maintained or taken down. Um, and, you know, the land had been leased out to either be hayed or to, there was a squash cooperative in our community, and they, Rhino Robin leased her land out to be grown for winter squash for a couple seasons, but essentially there hadn't been a lot of care given to the property in a number of years, partly because of, you know, Robin's uh, financial situation and, and no real help in terms of the farm, the farm wasn't paying the bills. So there wasn't a lot of money to be spending on the farm. And so we spent the, you know, the better part of five years in many ways, um, really making the farm, um, a presentable place and, uh, you know, a fertile place. So we're blessed with very good land. So that, that wasn't very difficult, but it's, uh, it's certainly been a process to sort of, clear things out and, and in some ways make it its, you know, make it its own. Right. The, the Robin, answer the question? I, yeah, the Robin I Van End story is, uh, it's kind of like the artist who, you know, has this brilliant work or this brilliant idea and then never sees a dime or never really sees the full impact of it. Um, but generations later, that's sort of just taken and people run with it and it's a, it's a real success. Absolutely. It, it is really amazing that in Robin's death, she has received more acclaim and more uh, respect for the energy that she put forth for this particular idea than she probably ever did while she was living. Um, case in point that the E.F. Schumacher Society has recently launched a local currency project and of the six bills that are out there, one of them is dedicated to Robin Van Ann. Her picture's on it. And, you know, very clearly, you know, commemorates and honors her for her commitment to the Berkshires and for the the legacy, I guess, that she leads this community because of the work that she did. Yeah, we could 
go on, it seems, for much longer about the history of the farm and the history of uh, Robin's life and the people that she interacted with. But I want to get more into the mechanics of community-supported agriculture. How does it function, and how does this uh, compare and contrast to conventional agriculture? Okay. Well, CSA, um, well, the idea in its basicness is that farmers have a ready-made market for their product, and that is in the form of members or subscribers or shareholders, depending on what term you choose to use. And those folks pay up front or over the course of the season for produce that's been grown for them directly by the farmer. Most of those folks come to farms, directly to the farm to pick up the produce or fruit or whatever it happens to be, depending on where the area of the country that you are. And then the farmer is guaranteed, one. there's a guaranteed income for the farmer regardless of weather or some other unforeseen problem that can that can happen. Um, the great thing about this is that uh, there is this idea then of shared risk, and the idea is that you're bringing the local produce, local food, in the direct hands of the people who are going to eat it. Um, in some cases, depending on where you are also in the country, that food has been delivered maybe to larger urban areas um, just by the nature of, you know, what's easier for what farm and wherever you are. How how successful has this approach been for you since you've taken over Indian Line Farm? Um, I would say, that, I mean, it is the primary primary income source for our farm. Though it didn't start out to be that way because Al and, I, Al and I had very little experience with farming initially, we in no way wanted to make a commitment to a group of people that we're going to expect food once a week and a nice assortment of food. So we chose to go the route of growing for several farmers markets and then marketing produce left over to restaurants or to stores. And it's something that we highly recommend for new growers to make sure that you know how to grow food before you start making commitments to groups of people, um, particularly shareholders, because we found that in though the CSA concept is great for new growers, if you don't know how to grow food, then in some ways you disparage the concept of CSA by relying on this idea that your share, that shareholders are sharing the risk. But if they're sharing the risk of you not knowing how to farm, we personally, this is just our opinion, we don't really feel like that's that's a fair, it's not really fair. So we waited about two years before we had a little more experience and before we felt like we had enough expertise to be able to make such commitments to people. And then we started taking on CSA members a little at a time. And that began... Let's see, about 90, 99, and we just grew slowly. We went from 30 members to 50 to 75 to 100, and now we're a fairly small farm in terms of CSAs around the country. We have a very committed 115-member CSA. We also sell at a very lucrative farmer's market and into a few stores and restaurants, and that seems to be a good match for our farm and what we like doing. I think some people think that 
you know, because of this huge time break between the original CSA and then when Al and I started, you know, there was almost, you know, there was over 10, you know, almost 10 years. And we very much began our CSA from scratch. It was with totally different people. You know, we marketed in a slightly different way and have developed it, though not far differently than the original um, than the original concept. Uh, we have been able to garner and learn from the mistakes of many other <laughs> early CSAs and develop something that really works for us. But the concept is, is generally the same. One thing they were very keen on originally was creating a budget and then fig- and then dividing that budget by the number of people that they had, and then that became the share price. And we find that our system is more complicated than that because we have a number of other outlets. So we essentially create our share price based on more what the retail value of the food actually is. And then, and then charge accordingly. Right, but how do you have you have a pretty good idea of what the market value is going to be when you actually harvest from the time that you're planting, and also you also have a pretty good idea of what products you're going to have in what quantities, and especially in terms of projecting yields. I guess is what I'm getting right. at. Right. Yeah, we do. I mean, we for one, we haven't done any substantial. Well, no, I'm not going to say that. We um, we're very good at, you know, as much as Mother Nature will allow. Um, I mean, I know how much, more or less, a 200-foot row of carrots is going to give me and how many pounds that's going to give a certain number of CSA members. And so, you know, we've gotten very good at calculating how much we need in order to support 115 members. And that's certainly been developed over the over a number of years. But um, it's very important, I feel, for CSA members to know those kinds of details so they know that they can supply uh, their members. Right. I mean, it's it's ultimately a math project that you need to engage in in the wintertime to make sure that it's going to work. And then as long as nature somewhat complies, then you should be okay as long as you're following planting schedules and succession plantings and things like that. I mean, it's very much uh, a timing thing, but as long as you can keep to a schedule the schedule that you've created that ideally works, then we found that we have, we've never had any amazing uh, shortfalls. Now, this is something you've kind of addressed indirectly, but I'd like to ask you the question more directly. Why is the relationship between the farm and the community important? I think overall, I mean, this is a discussion that's happening really countrywide in that we are losing farmers at a drastic rate and we are losing farmland at an even more drastic rate. And unless that trend is reversed, we will no longer have places to grow our food or the food will be produced only in these massive style conventional systems, which seem unsustainable. And it, you know, in our opinion, is important if we want to keep small farms in business that our local community needs to support us. And we, too, as farmers, need to be able to support our other local farmers. There's lots of um, trading and purchasing locally that also that happens for us. 
it's it's ultimately a survival of a way of life and a survival of a landscape and without somehow providing the measures to keep you know farmers in business you know we will just see development after development after development I think it's more than a survival of a way of life, although I, I think that's critically important. But I also think, as you're well aware, um, conventional agricultural systems are incredibly unstable. Um, mm-hmm. They're extremely dependent on fossil fuels. And as you know, our society and our civilization starts to feel the pinch more, it's not unreasonable to think that you know, 50 to 100 years from now, that a CSA-type model could potentially become the dominant model. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the great thing is that there are so many, you know, organizations and farmers coming together to to make, you know, to make the way for that. I mean, there's all these buy local campaigns and organizations that are just so trying to get the word out about how consumers can support local farms. And 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 keep them in business, and not only just keep them in business, but have them be thriving members of the the local economy. So, on that note, what can CSA operations do to be more competitive with conventional agriculture? One thing that they can do is to grow the highest quality product that they can, because ultimately, people want they want high quality, high quality, great tasting food, and two that needs to be highlighted, but also marketed in such a way that it's accessible to people. Uh, You know, your average person is only going to go so much out of their way to get something great, but they will go out of their way a little bit, case in point, by all the CSAs where people, you know, literally drive anywhere from 10 to, to 30 minutes to an hour out of their way to pick up food. So, Growing high-quality food and making that as accessible as possible, um, I think, is really important. And then three, really showing how this product is is different than the conventional counterpart, either just through education or through, um, well, ultimately through education and explanation about how it's grown. And this would certainly come out in its high quality and its you know better taste. Um, and then I think also really bringing people to farms, you know, having people come to farms, whether that or not that's part of your CSA, you know, there's nothing like seeing. Seeing is believing and bringing children and providing a place where people can come and see what's happening and how it's happening and seeing animals and seeing plants grow. I mean, there's nothing more, you know, for some people more relaxing and more eye-opening than than that. And so somehow providing as many experiences in that area I think I think is really important. Okay, so we're start we're starting to run out of time here, but I wanted to ask you uh, uh one last question, which is kind of a twofold question. Um and that is what is the future of CSA and how can people become more involved in CSA? Well I think a lot of you know, we, we have a fair amount of apprentices that come through this farm that work f- for us from season to season, and many of them are absolutely drawn to this idea of, of CSA as a way that they might get into agriculture. 
And so I think I think we will only see more. We will just see more in more and more communities. And there, I don't think there can really be too many. Um, I mean, I think some people might say that certain areas are saturated, but at least we've found, and from our other farming colleagues, there is so much demand for good food at this point that the market is wide open. So I think, one, you're just going to see a lot more CSAs. You might also see the concept spread not only to produce, but moving towards other products, other locally produced products like milk or dairy or eggs. And, and there's certainly people that are already doing that meat, that the idea of you know, directly marketing to the consumer with somehow a, you know, a prior commitment. I think we're going to see a lot of that. And, you know, I think the, the future for CSA is only positive. I don't, I don't see any, any negatives. And then your second question was how people can be more involved. How local, how people in local communities, you know, what they can do to get involved in this idea. I mean, some people that are listening might not have even heard of CSA before. So what is right. it that if, if they hear this and say, wow, that's great, what can they do once they yeah. hear it and get a- attracted to the idea? Right. Well, I would say, one, you need to you know, create a group that might be interested in that also, you know, come together with other people who might be interested in this idea and, you know, some communities have just gone out. They've found a piece of property which is either locally owned, town owned, or, you know, even individually owned and providing a place for some growers. And then people advertise for some growers and then they, you know, allow these growers to provide food for them. I mean, that's how it sometimes happens. And then I think other, a big thing, a big obstacle for most new growers or you know, people who haven't farmed before is access to land. So anything that community communities can do to save and preserve agricultural land to be productive and to somehow create land tenure situations that would make it feasible for new growers to purchase, lease, have long-term, you know, lease situations on land, again, productive, good land, anything that communities communities or individuals can do towards that end is going to be successful. Great. Um, That pretty much wraps up the amount of time that we have for today. Um, Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us. You're a great storyteller. And uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to listen to the history of Indian Line Farm and to the current situation that you guys are in now. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Well, that does it for today's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got some other great guests lined up for this community-supported agriculture theme. I'm not going to say who they are quite yet because I'm not sure what order they're going to be presented in, but uh, I'm sure all of you will be pleasantly surprised. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. If you'd like to participate, you can go to agroinnovations.com and click on podcast. Leave us your comments, ideas, suggestions. We'll be happy to have them. Thanks so much for joining us. Saludos.